This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at the Ankler here in New York City on the afternoon of Thursday, November 30th. I'm joined, as always, by uh, Elaine Lowe in Los Angeles. Elaine, tomorrow is December. I feel like it was just Q1 earnings season yesterday. Yeah, I think the strike took out all the oxygen of 2023. <laughs> is that it? Is it sad that I mark my life by earnings quarters, or is that is that normal? Is that, I don't know. I'm not quite That's sure. That's perfectly normal, but you're not talking to somebody else who is normal. So. <laughs> <laughs> you have your own markers. Yeah, Yours is by strikes, mine's by earnings reports. So yeah, we have, we're doing great, guys. We're doing great. Richard, unfortunately, has a matter he needed to attend to today. So Peter Kiefer is back to join us. Peter, how are you doing? I'm well, guys. I'm happy to be here. Good. Uh, how's that holiday shopping going so far? All done? You know, I will admit, I, I made out like a bandit on Monday. Um, oh, did you uh, Black Friday Monday. it up? Oh, Monday. Cyber What'd you Monday. get? What'd you get? Cyber. Uh, well, you know, kids listen to this podcast. Uh, I on, know. What are you talking about? <laughs> Don't want to spoil the Christmas list. <laughs> Super selfishly, it was like all sorts of man gear for like camping. And <laughs> oh, stuff. Peter it bought was, for himself. Okay. I just buy for it. myself. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, I am that kind of guy. I so, was asking uh, about your family, Peter. I should have specified. I didn't mean to say, uh, what'd you get yourself for Christmas? But yeah. No, yeah. no. They, they will get something, but this was my day. <laughs> like outdoorsy stuff or? Yeah, outdoorsy stuff. And, Listeners, uh, you should all know that Peter yeah. is wearing a buffalo plaid shirt right now. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a cap. So yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, he's very, very much uh, ready to go out there. Peter, of course, uh, wrote a great piece this week that dropped at the Ankler on the latest in Hollywood's WhatsApp culture and the uh, pretty intense rifts that have developed as a result, which we'll dive into shortly. And I spoke with movie audience research guru Kevin Getz, who heads up Screen Engine ASI which is kind of the go-to company for test screenings and audience research for the theatrical movie business. And he uh, had some really good insights into what he's seeing ahead for the impending Hollywood movie season, what his takeaways were from the, the year that was, and, and plenty of other stuff, which we'll, we'll get into later on. But first, Elaine, the New York Times Deal Books Conference Summit, whatever they call it, happened this week, which certainly got a lot of headlines. Apparently, Elon Musk went to the uh, Richard Rushfield How to Schmooze Advertiser Seminar, so that paid off pretty well. I think Folks are kind of up to speed here, but a little bit lay the land here for us. Oh, sure. Musk just dropping a couple of F-bombs real casually (laughs) at the New York Times Dealbook Conference, as one does. Basically, we've all seen this huge advertiser exodus, right, over the last week or so on X, formerly known as Twitter, over, you know, anti-Semitism on the site. And when asked about it on stage, Elon Musk tells the audience, basically, um, not basically, verbatim, go fuck yourself. Well, let, uh, we, have, we have the clip. Why don't we just let him speak oh, for Oh, yeah, himself? of course. Let's, let's. There we go. Elon, the mic is yours. If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> is that clear? I, I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Well, it's nice to give a little shout out to, to Bob Iger there. That's nice to always, you know, and with, you know, speak to the room is always good when you're on stage, right, Elaine? Certainly had a message for Bob and every other advertiser really just does not seem to care. I mean, kind of par for the course in in Elon in the Elon news cycle, right? Yeah, I mean, it is so uh, after his reposting of a tweet around. Palestine and Israel that was not taken well. Essentially, all this, I mean, the studios not only stopped, they pulled all their advertising, they stopped posting on X2, but the New York Times put, there's a, a up to a $75 million advertising hit as a result of all this. So this is where he's coming in hot to the room, Elaine, and uh, just had no, it was not his fault. If his investment, everybody's investment goes bad, it's, you know, it's it's the advertiser's fault, not not him for doing everything he's been doing. I think there's another Pizzagate thing he was putting out there this week, or you know, I just I just keep hearing I I, I just I don't pay that much attention to him anymore, so I, I caveat all of this with that. But I was going to say caveat all of this with I'm hardly on the site anymore, and I think that uh, well, might be the case for a lot of other folks in I the media world. I was going to ask you world. guys, yeah, Peter, are you a Twitter guy? Were you ever a Twitter guy? You know, yes, and I I am still on it. I'm sort of still probably more so than I need to be. 
And I think it's still relevant, don't you think, Elaine? It's useful. Reporters are on it, right? Like incessantly. But I still, I feel like even in the media world, it's like I'm not on it 20 times a day. We're reaching a point of what do you even say about Elon's antics and whatnot? I mean, it's just like we're watching a man in real time living in an alternate reality and where his actions are just he had he bears no responsibilities for things that he does and then he basically says it's everyone else's fault if twitter dies it's yeah, like this is this is like, oh, that put the quote in the wake up this morning but you know quote what this advertising boycott is going to do is it is going to kill the company and the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company what a bizarre thing to say yeah i mean can you imagine if you've you know given this guy billions of dollars a little over a year ago by the way to finance his twitter purchase and it's like yeah you're not you're not seeing that money that's uh you know <laughs> that's not coming back anyway we'll see what this fallout is the advertisers have always pulled back i don't see anybody upping their spend as a result of this coming back so he will have to deal with that and that is not my problem thankfully so yeah i just i wish someone had had a camera on linda yaccarino's face because i'm sure uh, she was there she's heard all yeah i don't yeah. right when he uttered those words just to have a, a camera <laughs> trained on on and then the uh, the curb your enthusiasm theme uh, comes in i think yeah exactly yeah she's gotta have much. developed one hell of a poker face by now anyway so the aforementioned bob Iger was there also elaine who is not selling his tv networks now apparently and that was the, certainly a headline was that, that was your there? read on it John. I don't, you know, I try. I didn't hear it, so my I was just reading the coverage of it. He essentially just said, like, you know, because this is spurred by this the big CNBC interview that came out in right. July from the the Sun Valley Summit, whatever you call these things, where he said it's essentially well, all these everything's on the table here. TV networks. He essentially was feeling it out with the investment community, but he's essentially that was his rationale. It's like, well, I was just actually floating it out to see, you know, or just kind of almost like thinking out loud, Elaine. But it made people very nervous back in yeah, July I when mean, he said that it was, like, what, what did he say? I think the phrase was, it may not be core to the company, these right. TV networks, which and, for so long had obviously been core. You know, you look at ABC right. and, and the, the local I mean, affiliate stations. Yeah, that alone, much less the yeah, like cable networks, ESPN, FX, you know, mm -hmm. where do you, what, what does that mean? You know, yeah, there was a lot of read, trying to read those tea leaves. We were talking about it this summer as to what exactly that meant. And then that, I guess he's looked at it or they've looked at it and not for sale, but he also dot, dot, dot. We're always evaluating what's a declining asset. And it's like, you know, take that as far as you want to take it. I, you know, I wouldn't take that as far as we're keeping all of our networks or, and it, he didn't say not shutting any down, Elaine. He just said we're not selling any. Maybe also means there are no buyers out there for these, you know, like for a few of these things. So he essentially had said that this was his way of telling Wall Street that they know about, obviously, the, right. the challenges that their business is and, facing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everybody knows about sort of the secular decline of linear TV. He himself has said, I said this in like 2017. So uh, yeah, I don't know that. Again, these, all these comments are just kind of like, uh, okay, fine. What's the new plan, man? You know, it's been, been a while. We'll see what that's going to be. But anyway, a, a, a whole lot of, I wouldn't trust it as far as I could throw it in terms of that. And yeah, ABC is still very valuable. I write about it, you know, in the wake up with like, you know, it's Monday Night Football and your favorite topic, but it's back on ESPN and ABC. And the ABC numbers are, are bigger than the ESPN numbers every week, usually by a margin. So there still is this great value to, to have there, um, whether they need Freeform or Disney Junior, things like that is, a, you know, an open question, certainly. But so TV networks is a, a broad term there, I think, at this point. Anyway, all right, let's take a quick break. We'll have Peter up next to dive into why Hollywood's creative community is still sounds pretty miserable, even though the uh, picket lines are over and a lot of people are back to work. But we'll be back in a moment. All right. Before we get to Peter, just to mention, to check out Richard's great piece this week called The Hit Movie Formula, which a few folks I've talked to this week said they really enjoyed and kind of gave a, a numerical framework to what it takes to open a movie in 2023 and get people to actually come to the movie theater, leave their houses based on various categories like the movie concept, the marketing campaign, the stars, et cetera. It's a really you know, thoughtful and insightful read. You can check that out over there at theankler.com. Another insightful read. I don't know that thoughtful is the adjective I'd associate with what you uncovered, Peter, but uh, you wrote a piece that had a lot of folks talking, likely in an encrypted app. So what's afoot in the world of Hollywood WhatsApp? Yeah, the story, it was a collection of thoughts and observations that I'd been uh, having for a while, but I sort of needed an event to help them all congeal into, his, into a narrative that like made sense to me. And unfortunately, that was the events of October 7th when Hamas 
attacked Israel and obviously the subsequent uh, war that's broken out. And what I noticed at first was that people in the entertainment industry were having an extremely difficult time talking about what was happening in Israel, what had happened in Israel and what was happening then in Gaza. Celebrities and agencies and production companies were all trying to issue statements about this and everyone was sort of sticking their foot in their mouth. And there was always a backlash. And what I ultimately saw at the same time were that people were so uncomfortable talking about this topic that they started creating encrypted chat groups where the sole topic of conversation was what was happening in in Israel and what we collectively can do to help the Israelis or what we collectively could do to help the Palestinians. So there's a lot of these WhatsApp groups out there. And let me just be clear, these groups were around before, which I make very clear in my article. They've been around for a long time, but they've had proliferated drastically since October 7th. And the tone and tenor of a lot of these chat groups has gotten uh, pretty toxic at times. And so what I wanted to do was attempt to unpack and analyze how we got to this point in the entertainment industry where people do not feel comfortable speaking out loud about very, very complex and sensitive topics. So they seem to be going, as I say in the story, underground. And they are curating these groups to make sure that they can say things without fear of retribution, personally or professionally. So you're basically creating these communities, and it's not just WhatsApp. It's happening in in, in Messenger and Signal and, and in Slack as well. But basically, people are siloing themselves off into these groups on topics that are extremely sensitive. And I just thought that that was not necessarily the sign of a healthy industry or even of a healthy culture. How did we get to this point? And I think there's a number of explanations, which I attempted to try and get into in the story. But ultimately, I landed on that this is probably not necessarily a great sign for an industry that's supposed to be about free expression and creating a comfortable space where we can share ideas regardless of what the topic is. So we called it WhatsApp Wars, but it's it was more about the events that have ultimately led to this moment in time where people are so afraid to say the wrong thing in front of the wrong people. Yeah, and it's, it's a, a wide swath of town from showrunners to executives, Peter, right? This isn't just a, a showrunner community or things like that, right? This is a pretty, you know, a decent amount of teams, decent sampling across different areas of the business, right? I frankly don't even know how many WhatsApp groups there are out there. I had right. I had heard, I mean, there's dozens, if not hundreds, that are specific to the entertainment industry. What I was noticing was that the, some huge ones with big names had formed over the past six weeks that included, you know, some of the heaviest hitters in town, and that alone was newsworthy. But then there was another one that was like with even bigger names and even bigger heavy hitters. And they were all centered on this question about uh, what was happening in Israel and in Gaza and in the Middle East. And then I was hearing about pro-Palestinian groups that were being formed and where the topics of conversation were about, well, we can't necessarily say that out loud, but you know, how do we counter the pro-Israeli narrative? And and so there were these dueling groups out there, all of whom were trying to sort of advocate on behalf of their quote unquote side. And a lot of them, I just want to be clear, a lot of it was just sort of benign sharing of information, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, passing around news articles. But as so often is the case on social media, some of these groups can become dominated by the most vocal and partisan minorities. Yeah. And so the tone and the toxicity levels spiked in certain instances to the point where certain uh, people's names were being mentioned in the vein of like these the, here are our perceived enemies wow, and yeah. that's a scary thing for this industry and something that has come up in multiple conversations i had which is partially why i felt like we needed to publish the story was because we don't want to get into a situation where uh, this industry is, is creating whoever it is uh, lists of perceived enemies. We've we've done that. We've yeah. well, this industry's gone through that, and it didn't end well. Yeah. And so I just felt like it was important to acknowledge that. I'm not saying necessarily that we're there, but these sort of things can lead to that, and that's not 
a good or a healthy sign. Yeah. You know, Elaine, you know, in terms of WhatsApp being this destination now, but this, you know, and you both, I think, had written a piece earlier this year about, you know, in strike conversations, it became a home for this kind of, you know, group, group discussion as well, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, despite how large some of these WhatsApp groups can get, they're still, I found, Peter, I don't know about you, a great deal of reticence to sort of then speak anywhere outside of those groups. I mean, how hard was it, Peter, to get people to speak on the record to you for this story? It was pretty hard. And yes, and as I say in the story, they don't necessarily have a code of conduct, like an official one, but people are, uh, journalists are not really welcome in these groups. Many other professions are. But journalists are sort of like barred from entering into the groups. Uh, if you're in one of these groups, you're very much urged not to share who else is in it. Screenshots and screen grabs are, are very much frowned upon. Uh, there is a I, I'm not going to call it like an omerta, but, you know, there is a, a sense that we need to protect these particular groups and we want to make this sort of a quote unquote safe space. As Elaine and I have reported on in the past. During the strike, um, there was a very, inf you know, the, this infamous showrunners group, which I actually opened my story on, uh, an anecdote from that, became like a very sort of powerful way for some writers and showrunners to sort of strategize and come up with plans of attack and help talk about what the Guild was doing when it was negotiating with the AMPTP. But uh, what happened was the solidarity that was kind of forged in that WhatsApp group for the showrunners was challenged after October 7th when a number of Jewish uh, participants were expressing their pain and suffering and their outrage, not only about what had happened, but also about how the Guild, the Writers Guild, had for, I think, several, at least several weeks, had not issued a statement decrying Hamas's attack on Israel. And that caused a number of other showrunners in the app to say, well, I don't support what, what Israel has done to the Palestinians. And so that really gets at a longer discussion about where the entertainment industry is. And you have to sort of, to tell the story, you kind of have to go back to the Trump administration and what happened over those four years and all the polarization and the culture wars that really bled into the entertainment industry, you know, starting with the Muslim ban, tra Muslim travel ban, to the Trump family separation policy at the border, to the uh, the Women's March movement, which led to the Me Too movement, and then obviously to the, um, the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. All of those events, the progressives in the entertainment industry really sprang into action and were activated and were in many ways sort of like urged to make sure that they were on the right side of history. And I think a lot of them really felt a lot of pressure to do that. And so what happened, I think, after October 7th was... Hollywood, which has, for, for its entire life, had a, a strong concentration of Jewish professionals in it. It was founded by Jewish people. They found themselves turning to their community of friends and peers, and a lot of them didn't feel like they were getting the kind of support that they needed after the events of October 7th. And that caused this really big rift across the industry. And I think that pushed people even further and further into warring camps about this issue. So that accelerated what was already an existing trend. And I'm hopeful that we don't end up being totally factionalized and continuing with these sort of dividing lines because we all, not only just the industry, the, we, we all have to find so much more common ground. And most importantly, a way for us to speak openly without fear of losing our job, of losing our friendship. You know, it, And this is a much larger discussion about where we are collectively in the United States about, you know, how did we get here? So we can't even talk about things anymore openly. And we have to police our language and people are policing your language. And so, again, the WhatsApp group and analyzing how we got to that was really my way into an exploration of a larger story about uh, this, is, this just, just does not feel like a healthy way for us to discuss and debate ideas. And, you know, this is tangential, Peter, but I also wonder when you're talking about the macro factors that have made this environment what it is, how much distrust of the media plays into that, too, where these conversations feel like they have to take place underground where, you know, like you said, journalists aren't really welcome. They also feel like people are really concerned about their what they're saying becoming headlines. Totally. I think that that gets at, again, those were the, the erosion and the attack on the institutions that occurred 
during the Trump administration. Number one, his public enemy, his, his enemy number one was the, you know, the lamestream media, which unfortunately was quite effective, I think, in many people's minds. So I think there's a general distrust of the media, but I think there's just a general distrust of everything right now that's not part of your worldview. Stephen Galloway, I, I interviewed him and he's talking about, it's just tribalism. And mm. it's not unique to the entertainment industry, but it's certainly happening here in a way that I haven't seen in a very, very long time. And I think that it's accelerated over the past six weeks. And it just feels like in a town that is supposed to be about expression and, and creativity and artistry and ideas, that it's a particular dangerous trend. And also collaboration, too, where we you don't know, think about this, not to tie in the whole AI factor, but like, you know, these things happen because these artisans come together and create a vision and, you know, and put this whole thing together. And that's, that's a big part of that, too, uh, Peter's being that ability to work together has been at the core of what makes Hollywood Hollywood. Totally. And this came up in many of my conversations. I mean, there is real uh, distrust out there and people are keeping a keen eye on what people are doing and saying. And you're seeing the fallout. I mean, uh, you know, the um, CIA agent Maha was the one that sort of people yeah. point to that, that the most. preceded this. Uh, yeah, yeah, prece- exactly. yeah, she preceded it. But, but I, even in the last week, uh, the, the actress Melissa Barrera was dropped from screen seven right. Right. After she posted some stuff on Instagram that the producers, uh, Spyglass Entertainment, thought was anti-Semitic. I think most people I talked to felt like, look, they were political, some of her posts. I, I didn't particularly think they were anti-Semitic. And that then prompted a group of actors, including John Cusack and Rowan Blanchard, to then send out tweets supporting her right to free speech. And then what's amazingly, in the 24 hours later, Susan Sarandon was dropped from UTA because she was at a rally and she said something along the lines of Jews are getting a a taste of how it feels to be Muslim in America. It just seems like every other day we are reading about some sort of person's life, personal or professional, being impacted by all this. And you do mention, I'll just finish this thought in the piece also, that a WhatsApp group may not be the best environment to have these conversations is such a nuanced topic. And, you know, whether it be social media or WhatsApp or, you know, text chat, people just don't, are not talking to each other anymore. And you can type something and have it be taken entirely out of context or tone or things, you know, so that's not helping this at all, Peter, as well. And seeing people isn't happening as much as more as it was before, which is also a factor into this kind of situation. So anyone who's texted a lot, I, you know, right. it's it's just you lose so much. You lose yeah. so much nuance. People just tend to be a lot more aggressive over text. They, right. You you interpret language that's been type pecked on on their phone in a way that you would never have if you were actually face to face with an individual. So it actually is bringing out. And I've got a quote from a Mark Guggenheim when he just says he's in a bunch of these groups and he says it's really impacting his mental health it because is, yeah. because of that because it's just not a place that is conducive to nuance. Well, that's a great piece. You can go check that out over there at theankler.com. A lot more detail on all, all of the above there. So, uh, Peter, great work there. All right. We're gonna, uh, up next, going to have uh, Kevin Getz join me to tell us what American audiences, test audiences, are telling him about how they decide to go see movies in 2023, plus some great insights into the superhero genre, family animation, uh, Rotten Tomatoes. We touch on that and what to expect in the upcoming holiday theatrical movie slate and much more. But uh, I'll be right back after a quick break with that. Okay, so I'm now joined by Kevin Getz, the founder and CEO of Screen Engine ASI. He's also the person that movie studios go to to find out, well, how the prospects for their upcoming film slates that they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on is looking. Everything from audience data, shifting trends, and of course, a famous, very extensive test screening process. Kevin, thanks for uh, making time to join today. Absolutely, Sean. So good to be here. And you're also the impending recipient of the American Cinematheque Power of Cinema Award with Helen Mirren. That's impressive. Wow. I'm still pinching myself. (laughs) It's it's incredible. It's an incredible honor that the American Cinematheque is bestowing on me this year. And it was actually postponed. It was supposed to be in November, but because of the SAG strike, we had to move it uh, and uh, it's going to be February 15th at the Beverly Hilton. So really, really excited and proud 
because no one in my end of the business usually gets. I know. Yeah. Uh, you and Helen Mirren are usually not in the same conversation. No offense, Kevin, but you know, that's probably not something you're used to. Well, it's true, but I love Helen. I've known her for a, a while and Taylor is a, is a friend and, and just to be in the same room with them is exciting. Yeah. All right. Looking forward to that in February. So just I'm curious there at Screen Engine. So, you know, you work on a, a wide array of movies. Where are you at now? Are you more centered on the December holiday season or are you already like in the summer movie season with what you're working on? Or how does Screen Engine kind of in a timeline work there? Just so I can set some context here. It, it's a great question, Sean. I mean, truly all of the above. OK, <laughs> I was about to say, see, all of the above. <laughs> right. Because the thing is, I have to be very much on top of what's happening now in the now and in the next four weeks of the new flights, advertising flights, but also have to be very mindful of what's going on for next year in terms of release strategies, release dates, where or how movies are going to, especially post-strike, how movies are going to test and evolve in their sort of normal post-process. So it's it's right. a complicated time right now for our industry and particularly in my end of the industry. Right, because the strikes probably threw off your timeline. The films aren't done yet in time. You know, oh, like you're figuring the right. I mean, I can only, I wouldn't have to get into it, but I can only imagine the, the like, when is, we, well, when are we screening this? When is a exactly. cut going available? When, yeah, right. There are movies literally that were going to screen, let's say in two, three weeks in last July that are now screening. So right. it's pushed everything so we're finishing movies. We are also in the beginning stages of some director's cuts that will be happening within the next uh, few weeks. It's a crazy period. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, let's talk about the audience. It's all, it's all about the audience, Kevin. So, you know, I guess this big picture here, where do movies fit in terms of where you see general audiences like watching in general at this point? Has their relationship changed in 2023? What do you hear from folks uh, when you go out and do these screenings and do your research? Well, absolutely, there's been a, a change, no doubt. The changes are in a few areas. Number one, moviegoers are far more judicious about how they're making their decisions. They're definitely more price sensitive. There is so much choice out there and the convenience of the home experience has gotten so easy and has definitely made the decision to leave one's home a higher bar. They must reach a higher bar. And if you look at the movies in this past year that have really worked theatrically, you're looking at movies that have an elevated sense of fun. You're looking at movies that have an elevated whatever it is. So for example, if it's horror, it's elevated horror. Even if it's drama, Oppenheimer, it's elevated drama. If it's, um, you know, well, comedy. An anima animation may be something too to talk about there. Well, absolutely. And, you know, did you, did you obviously, you, you work with Richard, did you see his eating system? <laughs> I was gonna maybe I was gonna if we had time ask you yeah, about his no, it's, system. It's yeah. actually let me just comment on that. He's really onto something. And I have to say that I've been doing that kind of work for about 15 years. It's something that people don't want to talk about, but there is a business model that can be made and business sense that can be made. And for those listeners who who don't know what we're talking about, Richard put a kind of a, a model, a point system rating different elements pre-green light and then of course post-production stage where you can say the ip gives you this many points the director gives you this many points right. the stars give you this many points and you have to have at least 10 points different rating systems have different things sure that is what we do at screen engine asi as well for particularly people who are coming into hollywood who really don't have a sense of how things work to have some kind of point of reference, a framework where you can assign a general point system to know that, wow, you can't blow smoke up your butt. You know, you have to be honest with yourself in order for the system to work. In other words, you can't have stars that are of a certain level and say you're getting four points for stars or you're even getting three points for stars when you know, and most of the industry knows that you get should be getting a one. Once you do that, it actually makes really good intuitive sense. What it's making you do more than anything is really think, really examine, take the audience in mind, in your mind, and think about what do I have to do to get people to leave their home to see a movie in a theater? And that is, to me, the most important thing. I wrote a book called Audienceology, 
which came out through Simon & Schuster a year and a half ago. And it talks about the screening process. Well, my next book that I'm writing, which is called also from Simon & Schuster, it's called How to Score in Hollywood, is essentially that premise. How do you get to a green light? What's the process? Why do people say yes to things? Now let's turn the table a little bit and go back to what you asked about the audience. The audience is everything. They're in the driver's seat now. So that's the biggest change. They're far more, as I said, judicious about how they're going to choose which movies they're going to see. If they feel worthy of an experience, that's a very crucial word, they will likely go to see it in a theater. Now, there's exceptions to that because everyone has a criteria of what may be elevated or exciting to them, but the things that are working theatrically are where a majority of eyeballs come together and giving it that quality of experience and elevation. And once you have that, that's the uh, element for success, which is why as we look at some of the movies coming out for the rest of the year, to me, I can sort of get a sense now through tracking how movies are going to fare. All right. So we're on the cusp of the holiday movie season here. We've had Thanksgiving, of course, uh, which I want to talk about a little bit in a, in a moment. But looking ahead, this weekend we have Beyonce in, in theaters this weekend with Renaissance. This weekend and next weekend are you know, relatively quiet. But December 15th, the floodgates open in that 10-day period of the holiday season. So what are you expecting? What's on your radar here for the holiday movies? Well, obviously, Wonka is going to be, uh, I think... the favorite, right, at this point? It is. I'll tell you, I think Aquaman is showing nice signs of awareness at this point. You know, the the problem is, let me say another answer to your initial question. Since COVID, foot traffic has decreased considerably. Oh, wow. So pre-sales get far more priority or as a pre-indicator of what is going to work. And that is just a very interesting phenomenon when you think about it. So again, you think about going to a concert or theater, movies are becoming more appointment. You used to go to a movie theater and see what was there. Many people did. And no, now you go to see a movie, a particular movie, a title, as opposed to showing up at a theater. Now there's still people that do that, but I'm saying by and large, that is a trend that we have seen happening. So based on pre-sale information that I'm aware of, you can see a movie like Color Purple right now, which I think is going to really be a sleeper success because it's a terrific picture and it is a known IP and it has a certain kind of really good holiday kind of feeling about it. And to me, if you just think about that, just let that sort of ruminate, you go, oh yeah, that sort of makes sense, right? That is another one. Uh, I think, as I said, Aquaman. There's migration, of course, coming in. Yeah, that's the big, I mean, we had the wish come out and the original animation is a big question mark for people. Like Super Mario, obviously, is number two movie of the year, but that's, you know, as existing IP, but this is a fresh concept here. So Kevin, what do you got on this? Well, (laughs) I never underestimate Illumination. (laughs) Illumination, yeah. Illumination and Chris Melodandry are just laden with, fairy dust, gold fairy dust. I mean, they they have it going on. Aside from it being a terrific picture, animation itself is just going through a tough time right now because a lot of the older kids and tweens who were more apt to embrace animation even 10 years ago, not necessarily as a first choice, but now we're sort of not really into it as much as they were, unless it is Spideyverse. Of course. Which is certainly an aged up, or it's Super Mario Brothers, which they grew up with and their parents are right. invested in and so forth. So sort of new IP in the animation space is far more challenged as a result of that, mm. uh, which I think is another sort of interesting phenomenon going on right now. But as I said, I never underestimate. Uh, yeah, their- I mean, it'll be an interesting bellwether, really, I think, you know, right? I mean, in a sense, it's a, it's an interesting test to put that franchise and that illumination, you know, firepower against a, a new a new concept here. And, and, it, and it's no indictment on movies. For example, oh, no, yeah. you know, you've got anyone but you. It's terrific picture and Ferrari, terrific picture and Boys in the Boat, terrific picture. But that's not really what's it hand here. It's more about the large number of folks who are going to rally behind the experience, the elevated 
experience. That doesn't mean that there's not a place for smaller movies, Iron Claw. You know, I mean, they can make a dent, but the big winners, I think, are the three that we mentioned, intuitively speaking. Right. And in terms of, I'll call it specialty, I'll call it in the middle middle of Oscar season, all the films are coming out, you know, specialty has been, I write about it all the time, pretty challenged. That audience has seemingly not really come back, but a few few hits, you know, here and there, the Priscilla's done pretty well. And, you know, a couple of films have hit, but nowhere near the numbers, you know, pre-COVID or anything like that. Is there something to be done here? What are audiences telling you? What are you, what are you seeing here? Oh, no, I don't, I don't believe there's something to be done. I think that there will be exceptions, of course, small movies like from that Angel Studios and things like that. They have have one coming out Friday as well. Exactly, the ship that, but, but that will sneak in. But that's, I think the exception to the rule, I think the primary reason is exactly what we've been discussing, which is can these movies, and they're often dramas, be seen in a home as easily, particularly as homes are getting better and better <laughs> right. in, and movies are getting more expensive and the experience of actually going to the theater itself can be a very pleasant one, but it's not often a pleasant one when you're competing with the other movies that are getting the smaller screens within the complexes or multiplexes that we are in because they can't sustain the big ones. And so it's just, it's not as pleasant an experience, but our generation, and when I say that, I mean Gen Xs and baby boomers are still more loyal to the movie going experience. Mm-hmm. But Gen Zs and at least half of millennials are not. They don't have that same nostalgia factor that we have. They don't have the same kind of attachment to going to a theater as we do. And so you see where the numbers are falling are not that younger people don't like to go to movie theaters, but they go to far, far fewer movies. So again, you're going to see, as we move into the future, more of a bifurcation of the haves and have-nots, mainly because of those two younger generations. And as people age up, you're only going to see a wider gap happening there. And as the boomers age out, a nice way of saying, as we all die. (laughs) uh, It's a research term, right? Yeah, exactly. They age out. out They age out of the demo. Yeah, right. Age out of the demo. (laughs) The sustaining of that smaller, older group cannot make up for the loss of the younger groups, if that makes sense. So that's why movie going is not going to precipitously drop. But to say things like movie going is back, movie going is not gone anywhere and it won't go anywhere other than the fact if we have to stay in our homes because of a pandemic, they're just going to, this has to be consolidation. There's going to have to be a recognition that the ticket to entry of a theatrical movie is just higher. And you can rue it, you can lament it, you can, you know, feel bad about it. But the truth is, it is a reality. Right, right. And it's, you know, it's been a tough year with inflation. And, you know, every almost every streaming service has raised its price. You know, what is the consumer pocketbook entertainment going into holidays season here? Is that going to be, you know, we've seen little takes of things about credit delinquencies increasing, things like that. Where is the consumer pocketbook for entertainment right now? Well, uh, yeah. We uh, we're still very much attached to our streaming services. I'm not as uh, negative about I think we are going to eliminate two streaming services. I think there'll be more selective purchasing and then maybe eliminating a service because there's a particular yeah, the, thing. The churn will be much increased. Yeah. But, you know, it, it just it's it's a just a different world. And we have to recognize that there's different modalities and different ways to see movies. What's interesting to me as a researcher And when I'm dealing with filmmakers, like I was at a screening last night and I I said to the filmmaker, it's a beautiful movie. And I said, think about the fact that the cadence of the hook in the first 10 minutes of a movie can't be too much of a slow burn because you'll lose people. And we have empirical evidence to suggest how many people can drop out within that first 10 minutes. And that's a crucial 10 minutes. Linear TV has recognized that for years. They had cold openings. You come back from a commercial, there's a bumper, you're back into the thing. And so you understand that there's a certain cadence in television. Well, I think movies on streaming services, at least debuting on streaming services, need to recognize that that cadence needs to be handled differently. It needs to be, the audience is not going to have the same 
patients is not going to have the same level of engagement if they're sitting in a seat with doing a single task. Many people, and I'll say many people at home multitask. I mean, we're essentially putting, uh, I think, 34 hours into a 24-hour day period through our media consumption. Wow. And that is because of um, multitasking. Uh, I mean, I, I, right now I'm doing a game. At, no, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, put your phone down. What did you have? But I have, I'm, I'm, I have done that before. Um, if I've been <laughs> bored on a call, I pulled out. <laughs> I think everybody can relate to that. Yes, exactly. But exactly. Uh, the, the, the truth is you understand the concept of that. And, and, and I think that we have to know that it's just part of the world now. So again, I, I say to great filmmakers who say, well, I'm not going to compromise. Well, fine, then lose 20% of your audience going in. Like, it's not a compromise, it's just a rethink. It's sort of like an act one, act two, act three structure maybe has to be thought of as act one, part A, part B structure, which is essentially getting to the inciting incident maybe quicker than you might have done if it is, you know that people can only see this theatrically. Right. But even so, you know, it's funny. I mean, people that see most movies over the last 25, 30 years or whatever it's been, 50 years, have seen them in some other format other than theatrically. One really, really great filmmaker, I remember not too long ago, said his favorite movie of all time was Jaws. And he'd never seen it in a movie theater. And I said, wow, that's really interesting. And that's true of so many movies. Sean, I throw it on you. When was the last time you saw Maltese Falcon or Citizen Kane in a movie that did you ever yeah. see Citizen Kane? No, it wasn't, it wasn't even an option for me. You know, uh, it's uh, yeah, even uh, Jaws. I never, you know, Jaws came out the year I was born. You know, so I had was never not, seen uh... Jaws in a movie theater until I we rented a place in Martha's Vineyard <laughs> okay. and, we, right. and every year because they do a festival, kind of a revival. Oh, festival, I get it. Yep. We, my buddy and I went to see Jaws and we were, there were seven, eight people in the theater. It was so exciting. Yeah. In fact, we walked out and all of a sudden we are in the midst of a parade going on. So it looked like <laughs> imitating art. It was crazy, but the experience, and I have a story in audienceology in my book, about that particular movie and Stephen reshooting uh, a moment where the head comes in. And I was waiting for that moment. And as soon as that moment came in, I saw the audience react it really shockingly. And I said, it still works. The idea <laughs> of audience feedback still works. Nothing you're replacing a film with an audience, no matter what you know what what you have in the in the in the ecosystem there. I will, so along those lines, you know, do reviews matter? Rotten Tomatoes gets a lot of press out there. Is social media the big factor here? You know, where's where's the state of this in 2023, Kevin? You know, the truth is, Sean, <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes doesn't matter that much in the uh, overall country. Rotten Tomatoes is a great site. I use it regularly, but I use it really to understand what movies are out, uh, maybe to see the trailers, maybe look historically at something. But I personally, I'm very sensitive to my time. And if something is under a certain level, now my benchmark is pretty high actually, personally, but most people's is not. So if my benchmark might be 85, and if something is below an 85, I'm probably not gonna see it unless there's a business reason for me to see it. Well, of course, yeah. It's in the zeitgeist, I need to be in the know or what. But if it's under 85 for a personal, I'm gonna like, eh, let's see something else. Right. I think audiences, most people don't depend on critics at all. They depend on the audience reaction far more than the critic reaction. And that is something that we've done extensive research on. But even the audience reaction doesn't influence it all that much. Now, if something is a 15, right. uh, you know, that actually could dissuade people from seeing a movie, but it also can work in a very interesting way. It could be almost like what, the curiosity factor. Right. It's so bad, it's good. It's so bad, it's good, yeah, exactly. Right. Or, or people, why are people hating on this? Right. But by and large, it's a lot of noise and the importance of Rotten Tomatoes in our industry is really much more self-inflicted or a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like we care because we're so sensitive to everything in our ecosystem. 
But audiences in general out there in the middle of the country and elsewhere don't care all that much. Yeah, yeah. Well, before I can't let you go here without asking about the superhero genre, of course. This is the hottest topic I think that we've had, certainly the last month, and certainly for the year. We've had, I think, seven DC and Marvel films this year. I think one that people generally liked in Guardians of the Galaxy. We haven't seen Aquaman 2 yet, of course. Is there a problem here, Kevin? What do you, what are audiences telling you about this genre? Give us your insight here. I don't think superhero movies are dead. I think that we just have to Understand that people are very, audiences are very keen on a clarity of message, on a sense of not retread something, familiar but not too familiar. (laughs) I I mean, seriously, there's an alchemy here that has to be embraced. And if it is, that superhero movie is going to be successful. But a glut of anything in the marketplace is never good. I wouldn't necessarily call a glut happening, but I will say that the benchmark for a theatrical experience has to have different levers and you've got to hit those. And if you're feeling like it's same old, same old, look, Richard again talks about IP. And I remember he said Barbie's IP was, uh, he got a four. And I would argue that. I would say to Richard, I love what he did, but I think that the IP on that was, he had two things. He had IP and then he had um, another thing that he characterized as sort of the concept. Right. That I would give Barbie the highest level on. The IP of Barbie, although it's well known, in different hands of then Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie and Robbie Brenner and David, you know, could have really, and Tom Ackerley, could have been, of really disastrous thing because it's so relegated to being a small, almost like a cash play, but it was the conceit of that that changed the DNA. And that to me was the success story of that movie is that I learned something at this stage of my career, which is that you actually can change the DNA of the IP. And this goes back to the superhero movies. They've got to reinvent the superhero movie through a DNA change in a way. And that lies somewhere in the familiar, but not familiar. I mean, Barbie people could, be, there was a clarity. And then Josh Goldstein's marketing campaign was magnificent. And the reason it was magnificent is because it very carefully laid out how to embrace that movie, how to understand that movie. The communication, the marketing communication of that movie was just so clear. You knew what you were going to see. It was irreverent. It was or, or what you or what you weren't going to see, you know, it, in a sense, too. Like, it's or, not going to be exactly, this other, you know, co- exactly. cookie cutter this, Barbie movie. This right? is yeah. not your your mother's. Barbie. It's not what you're thinking when you think of Barbie. It's not it, that, exactly. You know, yeah. And yeah. that was the genius. So any movie needs to go through that kind of I mean, the genius of the campaign. I'm sorry. It sounds like I'm name dropping Michael <laughs> did on on Oppenheimer. What, yeah, Michael did what a great that, job. But laying that groundwork. It was a movie about the atom bomb. Okay, again, let's not discount Christopher Nolan. He is a brand. He has a brand imprimatur and puts that on his movies that you just want to see it because of him. But the way the studio laid the campaign out, allowed the audience to discover it slowly, carefully throughout for a long time before. And then as it got up to it, the intensity, the urgency, just beautiful. And so you had this two things happen and we have that you put them together right on the same day and then it explodes. That was a great thing for our industry. That was a event event for theatrical movie going. I'm so excited about it. And, and again, the American cinema tech, I have to say, I, we share values in the fact that you, you hit it on the head, Sean audiences, man, audiences so important. And there's nothing like the, that experience of sitting in a dark theater that said, there's other ways to watch movies that you can really enjoy. So yep. it's it's just you want to know that and in, live in the world that we are and not try to pretend as though it's something else or, you know, we're going back in time or whatever. Right. We're not. We're moving forward. And if you want to get on that train, it's a smart train to be on. Yeah, and there's opportunity and there's opportunity in that. It's just different from what it used to be in a certain sense or expanded, perhaps. Kevin, thanks for joining. Uh, how can folks follow? You have a podcast we should mention, of course. Please. I do. I have a podcast I hope people will listen to. It's called Don't Kill the Messenger, which if you know what I do in terms of audience test screenings and have to deliver the news I deliver, it's a very 
apt. <laughs> yeah. Don't kill the messenger is on almost every you know platform. Just search, just search for it. Yeah, but a lot of, a lot of great uh, executive conversations as well through past and present on there. There's been some great conversations. I'm about to go there. to record Nick Stoller, the uh, director, right. and uh, we recently had Antoine Fuqua, and we had Jim Giannopoulos and Robbie Brenner from Mattel talking about the whole Barbie experience and Terry Press. Oh, a wonderful. Yeah, interview. that was what I remember. Yeah. She was oh, great. did you? Yeah. 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 It's super fun. And, and thank you for mentioning that. It means a lot to me. And I want to say that your podcast and you, Sean, should be followed because you are terrific. You have a great understanding of the business. And I have a, a man crush on Richard. I've <laughs> been following him. I think he is one of, if not the smartest guy in the business. I won't tell him that to inflate his ego, but uh, we'll relay a message uh, along those lines. So we'll leave it there. Kevin, thanks for making time today and a happy holiday season to you at the movie theater and otherwise. And to you as well, Sean. Take care. Okay, my thanks again to Kevin Getz for the chat. Peter and Elaine, how many uh, movies are you guys seeing a year now? I think I know the answer, but... <laughs> I saw Book Club 2 this year. Is that not enough for you, we Sean? We know about the book. <laughs> yes, you and Mom, and you saw Super Mario. I saw yeah, Oppenheimer. So and Eventually. three, all right. You got three, yeah, all right. Go. Good. Five more than that. Uh, Peter, what do you got? You know, uh, most of my movie viewing, ha- I, I stuff it all in during awards season. Ah, all right. In my household, we have access to a fair amount of these screeners. So I really have a, I gorge myself. So, uh, but I did actually this week, I saw the new Todd Haynes film, May, December with Natalie Portman and Julian Moore. And it was quite good. I liked it a lot. It was actually one of these movies where I probably could have seen it in the theater as opposed to at home. Took me two nights. And I think a Todd Haynes is the type of filmmaker that you kind of want to see in a theater. But I did enjoy it quite a bit, and I would recommend everyone to watch it. It is a Netflix film for the record, so you will be watching it at home no matter what. You will. Yes, 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 you will. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, Sean, I did watch Mission Impossible, finally. Oh, okay. There you go. So you're catching up on the summer movies. This is great. No, 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 not Dead Reckoning, the original 1996 one. All right, you got six more to go or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, you know, I'd never seen any of the MI movies. I should get started. What what did you think? (laughs) Does it hold up? It does. It does. You know, it's funny because I love heist movies. And it just, I was like, oh, yeah. Why have I never seen any of these movies before? But I thought you'd be proud of me. Come on. I'm I'm on my way to finally getting to this summer's Mission Impossible. I'm on three now. I'm on three. Oh, wow. You'll be there in no time. That's easy. All right, Elaine, you and your friend circle, uh, movies at Conversation Point or or not so much? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, especially now that I have I have two kids under 10 and the younger one is nearly five. So now now it's like they're both finally at the age where they can mm. kind of like actually sit through like a 90 minute <laughs> thing without just bouncing off the walls. But right. there's a lot of interest in Wonka because we just finished rereading Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Ah. So that IP right. tie in very strong uh. here. All right, Elaine needs a, a Wonka premiere invite, Hollywood. H- hook her up with the family. Hook me Let's up, Chalamet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap for this week. Elaine and Peter, always a pleasure to see you both. And remember to subscribe to The Ankler at theankler.com for all the latest from Mr. Rushfield, of course, my daily wake-up newsletter, Entertainment Strategy Guy, who has also a new piece to give a shout-out to this week about how foreign series stack up against American series. A lot of really interesting numbers to note in there. Uh, a great roundup from him, as always. Plus the latest insights from the Hollywood executive suites and more from Peter, Elaine, Claire, and the rest of the Ankler team. Uh, You can follow the Ankler at the Ankler on the socials. And uh, that's a wrap for this week. We'll see you next time. And thanks for listening.